Daniel chapter 3, in verse 19, the Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and they were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like the son of God. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed, nor were their garments affected. And the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and set, who, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word, and they have yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be, well, cut in pieces. And their houses shall be made an ash heap. Because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. We've made our way through the third chapter. And for good reason, it is one of the most beloved chapters in all of the Bible. It's a story of rare courage and raw commitment in the face of unavoidable suffering. And there seems to be two kinds of suffering. Things that we should be able to avoid and things that are unavoidable. 
It's the story of a flamboyant king in verses 1 through 7. Three faithful men in verses 8 through 23. And now we're introduced to a fourth man. A fourth man that they meet in the fire in verse 25. A supernatural divine being who is able to protect them and preserve them in the raging fire. King Nebuchadnezzar, you'll remember, built a gigantic statue on the plains of Dura for all the world to worship. And the king summoned the political leaders and and the administrators to the statue's dedication. And when the Babylonian symphony played, all the world was supposed to bow down and worship the gold statue. And the penalty was severe. Death by incineration, verses 6 and 7. And so repeatedly, we're told that our friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have refused to bow down to the statue. They will not dishonor God. They will obey what God has commanded, that there's only one God, and him alone will you serve. And the king offers the three brave men an opportunity to return to the king's graces, avoid punishment, just simply bow down to the image, worship the image when the band begins to play in verses 13 through 15. And the threat is very real. Will their testimony of faithfulness to God remain steadfast? And these men resolve that they will honor the God of their fathers in verses 16 through 18. And you'll remember what they said. We will burn if need be. But we're not going to serve any God other than the God of our fathers. And so again, the king orders the men thrown into the fire. And the fire is heated to impossible temperatures. So much so that the mighty men who execute the king's orders are killed instantly by the raging fire in verses 19 through 23. And in the fire walks a fourth man, this divine being who protects them and sustains them and preserves them as followers of Jehovah in verse 25. And then this king's anger is transformed to astonishment. As he concedes, the supernatural being has thwarted his command in verses 24 through 25. And the supernatural deliverance prompts this sovereign decree from this amazed king in verses 29 through 30. That everyone who speaks against God will be put to death. And the three men are promptly promoted to even higher authority. You've got to understand something. For the, the Jewish people and for the Hebrew children, this order is going to make it possible for them to exercise religious freedom in captivity, establish synagogue relationships, and purpose in their heart to avoid idolatry at all costs. And this is going to cure them of idolatry forever. That doesn't mean that they don't have other issues, but it's going to cure them of idolatry 
And by the way, what is idolatry? Well, before I answer that question, I want to remind you just of a couple of quick things. The chapter is full of practical lessons. We can expect fiery trials. We can expect the furnace of persecution. And sometimes persecution results in preservation and promotion. At this very moment, at this very moment, there is a Turkish there's a pastor in Turkey who is in Izmir and he's been incarcerated for two years unjustly, wrongly. There's a concentrated effort to get him out. When he is asked about his incarceration, here's what he says. Jesus suffered. It's my turn. To suffer for Jesus. He doesn't make excuses. And he certainly doesn't concede that he is guilty of any crime. Other than loving the Lord. There are doctrinal lessons. Babylon is remember more than just an ancient city or a long dead empire. It represents a world that stands in permanent opposition to the things of, of God and the Bible. In the Bible, Babylon is a synonym for the world. Babylon is the personification of man's rebellion against God. And the golden statue is that picture of idols and idolatry. And so when we think about idolatry, what is it? It is the belief that anything, it is the belief that anything other than the God of the Bible can meet my deepest needs or satisfy my deepest longings. We live in a culture and a society that doesn't necessarily erect statues and call you to burn incense or light candles or pray to the statue. Our idols, for the most part, are invisible, but dangerous. They're invisible because they speak to the deepest, darkest situations in our life where we think we're going to be satisfied, apart from God, apart from Christ. The wicked king Nebuchadnezzar wants to unite his kingdom and government and religion in this man-centered utopian dream. I read at the Babylon Bee, which is a sarcasm site. It says, we've got to bring this crushing prosperity of America to a close. We've got to promote socialism. <laughs> yeah, that's what I did. I laughed as well. The scheme centered on gold and what gold promised. The whole Babylonian system is Satan's counterfeit in perpetual opposition to God's truth and God's Christ. Babel, by the way, meant the gate of God. It pretended to be the way to heaven, but in the Hebrew language, it came to be translated confusion. And so the chapter is also filled with prophetic lessons. The chapter provides a sneak peek into a future angry king 
who will pursue global governance in the hope of uniting the whole world against the God of the Bible. In a future tribulation, God is going to preserve the remnant of the Jewish people who's going to survive this unbelievable firestorm. And in the firestorm, the Messiah is going to protect them and preserve them and promote them. And perhaps a future generation of Jewish believers are going to read this chapter or watch this video and they are going to understand something that their circumstances exist for the glory of God and to reveal his miraculous power. Or it might have something to do with you. It might be meant to help you as you're walking into a future flame. But we look at the king's anger. Look at this in verse 19. The Nebuchadnezzar was full of anger, fury. And the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than was usually heated. And I've already told you that this is hyperbole. You can only get the fire so hot. If you're wondering, it takes about 1,500 to 1,700 degrees to cremate a body. So think about this. If you're going to cremate a body, you have to hoist the temperature to about 1,700 degrees. And then it takes about two and a half hours to reduce the human body to charred bones. There's about seven to ten pounds of bones in each and every human body. And so they're hoping that they're going to scrape the bones of these children together. And it says, then these men were bound in their coats. In verse 20 it says, he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning fiery flame. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, their garments, and they were cast into the burning fiery furnace. And therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And if these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down in the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. So this burning, fiery furnace isn't some little kiln that you would use to just simply cremate bodies. This is a gigantic industrial kiln. And I want you to picture it because it's going to be very large, large enough for three people, or in this case, four people to fit in. There's going to be an orifice or an opening on the top, and then there's going to be orifices at either side as the flames are coming out, and it's going to allow the opportunity for the people watching to peer in. And a lot of Bible teachers in passing have noted Nebuchadnezzar's anger problem. <laughs> now remember why he's angry. It's because they have defied him. He sees it as a personal threat against his authority and dignity. I want you to remember something about this king. Remember he said, who is the God who will save you? He said, 
hey, our God may or may not save us, but whether he does or doesn't, we're going to purpose in our heart to obey God. And remember, the king doesn't believe these faithful men. He doesn't care what they think about their God. He doesn't care what they think about their God's power. Nebuchadnezzar's rage manifests itself because they are willing to defy him. The text literally reads, quote, and the image or the expression on his face changed toward them, that is towards the Jews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Satan is fine with you. If you'll just go along with the program. You see, you don't present a threat or a problem until the moment that you go, hey, wait a minute, what if the Bible is true? Hey, wait a minute, what if Jesus Christ really is the Lord? Hey, wait a minute, what if my sin is a horrible and a terrible problem? And what if the only solution to my sin is Jesus Christ, the Lord, the only way that I can have a right relationship with God is to trust him, to forgive my sin and reconcile me to himself. That's when you become a problem. It's not a problem, by the way, if you're religious. It's not a problem, particularly if your religion is one of peace, love, dove, bells, beads, pot, incense, crash pads, water beds, freaky light shows. It only becomes a problem if you turn in faith to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and then all hell breaks loose. Proverbs 15, 18 says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. The angry king is willing to sacrifice brave and strong men to carry out his orders. And Satan is an angry king. The Bible says that he is depicted like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's pictured as a dragon in heaven. And so, Satan is certainly willing that other people get hurt if it means hurting you. There's no one, there is no one that he's willing to hurt if he can get to you. And so, we're torn. Which is hotter? The king's face or the king's furnace. You're going to note several things. The men are bound in verse 20. The men are clothed in verse 21. The furnace is hot. We know that it's hot and it's real because strong men perish following the king's orders. And you'll remember that Jesus spoke plainly about his own fiery trial. He told his disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer at the hands of Jewish leaders. I'm going to be killed. And three days later, 
I'm going to come back to life in Matthew 16, 21. Sometimes suffering is unavoidable. Peter tries to spare Jesus from his prophesied suffering. But if Jesus had not suffered, Peter and you and I would remain in our sin. The disciples found it difficult to grasp the reasons why Jesus has to suffer. And it makes perfect sense to me that we don't always grasp the reason why we have to suffer. Why is my mother diagnosed with cancer? Why is my father dying of cancer? Why is this happening? Why does this child have this disease? How do you explain this? How do you explain that? How do you understand this complete reversal of financial circumstances? How do you explain it? We are not always able to explain it. The disciples asked Jesus, Master, why was this man born blind? Was it the result of his own sin or the sin of his parents? Neither, Jesus says, but to demonstrate the power of God in John chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Why do these men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, have to face this fiery furnace? Well, we know the outcome. We know that God is going to be glorified and magnified and the children of Israel collectively are going to be able to have at least some small safe zone as they walk into the future that God requires them to have. So these three brave and faithful men are going to face this fiery furnace in order to demonstrate the power of God. And even though I don't know all of the reasons why all of the Bad things happen to every single person. I feel convinced that no suffering ever goes to waste. That it's meant to reveal the power of God. So how does God make use of our suffering? Paul writes about it in in 1 Thessalonians, he says, finally, when I couldn't stand it any longer, I decided to stay alone in Athens and send Timothy, our brother and fellow worker, God's minister, to visit you and strengthen your faith and encourage you and to keep you from becoming faint-hearted in all the troubles that you're going through. But of course, you know that such troubles are a part of God's plan for us Christians, he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Three, verses 1 through 3. How could Paul with such confidence say these things? Suffering doesn't always come from sin and it doesn't always come from a lack of faith or catastrophic failure. Sometimes we experience pain and we experience setback and we experience suffering to build our character according to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, to promote patience, Romans 5, 3, to increase our sensitivity towards others who are experiencing unbelievable difficulty, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Trials come. 
and some of them are unavoidable. It was Jesus who said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Satan's goal is to keep us from knowing God's word. If he can keep us from knowing God's word, he will be successful. But if he can't keep you from knowing God's word, he will try to keep you from doing God's word. Both are equally important. It isn't just simply to keep you away from church or to keep you away from the Bible. He, he loves it if you go to church and even read your Bible if you decide to just simply ignore everything that it says. If he can't keep you from knowing the word or doing the word, he will tempt you to believe that God isn't as good as the Bible says. Or that your sins really aren't forgiven. And that there's no possible way that you could change because you are entrenched in this dark circumstance of your life. But nothing could be further from the, tr the truth. You know what? God does love you. Jesus will forgive you. And let me just be blunt. You can change. Satan is committed to persuading you to worship him. But in Christ, by the Holy Spirit, we can resist the devil. We can submit to God and we can watch him make a run for it. And look, look at what it says in verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and he rose in haste and he spoke saying to his counselors, did we not cast three men Bound in the midst of the fire, they answered and said, True, O king, I want you to think about what's happening in the text. This king is watching what's happening. He sees the three mighty men evaporate. He sees them thrown into the fiery furnace. And he goes, wait a minute. This, I probably took way too many hallucinogens as a, as a child. I'm hallucinating, right? I'm seeing something that's not there. Those guys are dead, right? Or am I seeing them alive in the midst of the fiery furnace? This is one of the ways that you can know that you're psychotic or just in trouble. If you see, you know, when you go to a doctor and the doc, you, you say to the doctor, I'm seeing things that nobody, you know, I'm seeing angels, I'm seeing demons, I'm seeing this, I'm seeing that. And the doctor says, can I see them too? And so the king is saying, do you see what I see? And they say, yes, O king. He says, look, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and the form of the fourth is like ben Elohim. Literally in the text, both in the Aramaic version and in the Hebrew version, it says sons of gods. It's a reference to a supernatural being. Remember what I said to you, the furnace is a big square oven that has an opening on the top and then there are 
openings in the side to vent the furnace so that the flames can go out. And they're looking into the side of the furnace so that they can see everything that's going on inside. The only thing that has perished in the fire are the ropes or the chains that bound them. Isn't that interesting? And in verse 25, like I said, it literally says a son of the gods. In the Semitic language, it's a reference to a supernatural being. Scholars suggest that the recognition of this supernatural being was usually predicated on, on, on clothing or, or what the Babylonians referred to as melamu. This means it's a being that has a divine glow. So again, I, I want you to think about what Nebuchadnezzar is thinking about as he's looking in. Because again, as you're seeing a fiery furnace and you're seeing images in the fiery furnace and you see people in the fiery furnace, why does he say that this particular person looks different from the other people? Is he dressed differently? Is he? It, it seems impossible for me to think, can you imagine glowing in a fiery furnace? The fiery furnace is glowing, but whatever being is inside is burning brighter than the flames that are around him. They, we have no reason to believe that Nebuchadnezzar knew anything about the Messiah that he knew anything about God's anointed. But he does know there's something supernatural. There's a supernatural being in the fire. He knows that the fire is real because the men have lost their life throwing them in. And who is this fourth man in the fire? The fourth person in the fire isn't given an explanation, but whoever he is, he is a supernatural being. And there might be a hint that was given in verse 15 earlier in the chapter. Do you remember what Nebuchadnezzar said? Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So let's just for the process of elimination, try and figure out who this person is. Does it make sense to you that one of the gods of the Babylonian pantheon of deities walked in the, into the furnace to preserve these three children? No. A Babylonian god's not going to do it. Satan's not going to do it. Whoever this being is, whatever this angelic being is, the angelic being or, or the being has been sent by the God of the Bible. Some scholars think that this is what's called a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus. In the book of Daniel later, we're going to get a vision of this supernatural being. In the book of Revelation, it talks about this glowing head of hair and blazing eyes. In, in Colossians 1.16, it says, For through him and without him is not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Everything was created by him and for him. Ron Rhodes thinks it's a pre-incarnate 
visitation of the Lord Jesus, he writes, quote, Now the one who created the universe maintains absolute control over the elements in the universe, including fire. If Christ indeed made a pre-incarnate appearance in the burning furnace, his control of the effects of the fire would have been in perfect keeping with his divine power. And so whatever this divine power is and however this force field works, remember, there's no smoke damage. There's no evidence whatsoever that they've even come close to the fire. The only thing that has evaporated in the furnace are the chains or the ropes that bound them together. And we understand something, that the pre-incarnate Jesus was mighty to save. And I'm here to tell you that the resurrected Jesus is mighty to save. So what can we expect in our fiery trials? I think we can expect the presence of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? I will be with you. I'll never leave you. I won't forsake you. He will strengthen us for the task at hand, to bear the trial or to deliver us in the trial. Can we really be more than conquerors in life through Christ Jesus? Does God really watch over us? Is sin capable of being forgiven? And is there even the remotest possibility that your heart can be changed? And I think that the answer is yes. The Lord loves and cares for his obedient children. Time out, you might say. Wait a minute, you just said he loves and cares for his obedient children. How does he feel about his disobedient children? He loves and cares, even for his disobedient children. Because I want you to note something that's happening in the text. The obedience of these three men is going to result in freedom for every Jewish captive. It's not a throwaway that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to say, from now on, you can't make fun of the God of the Bible. You can't tease these Jewish people about worshiping an invisible God. You can't deny them from reading their prophets and you can no longer take away from them the hope that what God says in his word applies to them and that one day they are going to go back to the place where they belong so that they can fulfill the will of God and the word of God. We're living in a magical moment of time where we have unprecedented freedom unprecedented privileges, unprecedented opportunities. I wish I could say to you that our freedoms and privileges will last forever. They may not. And if they don't, it's going to take courage and commitment to walk into the future that's been assigned to us. And so, 
God loves and cares even for his disobedient children. Rebellion and disobedience brings punishment. The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. But there is love and there is grace and there is mercy and there is forgiveness even for people who have been less than perfect. We're called to be faithful followers of Jesus. Our lives are supposed to be marked by love and grace. The believer isn't exempt from suffering. But every believer has been promised specific deliverances. I don't have time to go over them at length, but I just want to bring them to your attention. Number one, Jesus has delivered us from the curse of, of having broken God's law in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. We've been freed from the curse of the law. With the curse of the law comes death. But in Christ, guess what? There's forgiveness and hope. Number two, Jesus has delivered us from the condemnation of sin. Most of you are familiar with Romans chapter 8 verse 1 where it says, There is therefore now no condemnation. The judicial pronouncement of guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, guess what? You have been delivered from the consequences of being separated from God forever. If you know and love Jesus, you will one day stand before God, but God will never say, I find you guilty. He says, I find you innocent in Christ. Because if you have any self-awareness whatsoever, you know that you're not innocent. You know that you're guilty. You know that the soul that sins it shall surely die. But Jesus is willing to forgive you. Number three, Jesus has delivered us from the slavery of sin, Romans 6, 18. Jesus has delivered us from the evil in the world, Galatians 1, 4. That's number four. Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness. That's number five, Colossians 1, 13. Jesus has delivered us from the fear of death, Hebrews 2.15. And some of you might be thinking, time out. I'm still afraid. But your fear is unfounded. You may be afraid. But Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, even if he were dead. Dead, yet shall he live. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. By saying that, he says, I'm going to bring myself back to life and I'm going to bring you back to life. He's gone through the journey. He's made the journey. This is why the New Testament writers would say, he's brought me out of darkness into light. He's delivered me from death and into life. And finally, Jesus has delivered us from self in the death of Christ. Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I don't live, but rather Jesus lives inside of me. We've been told that if Jesus lives in, inside of us, that we have died to self and that we've been resurrected in Christ and that we have permission 
to allow Jesus to inform our thinking and to allow Jesus to inform our decision making. That we have permission to allow the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in those decisions. We sometimes struggle with what the Bible says. Can Jesus really deliver us from those things? We know that Abraham believed God would raise his son Isaac from the dead. We know that David faced Goliath with a sling and five smooth stones. We know that Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal before calling down fire from heaven. We expect our heroes to face danger with unflinching courage and confidence. But what if we feel helpless? What if we feel weak? What if we feel isolated? This is why the Bible constantly invites you to pray for one another and to minister to one another and encourage one another and support one another. And the one another ministry can only take place if you're together. These men are going to give their allegiance to God. But I'm going to suggest to you again that with unity came confidence and courage as they all faced the same fate. These men are going to survive. But many who went before them and many who came after them didn't survive. But I want to point something out to you. All of them were delivered. And look at the king's answer. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke saying, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. Don't you wish they would have said, no, dude, you come in here and get us. You want us? You come and get us. We laugh. The text doesn't say that. The text says, <laughs> then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. It's interesting to me. Even in the midst of this fiery, painful trial, they're showing respect and obedience to their persecutor. And the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and they saw these men on whose bodies, and you should, if you're an underliner, this is what you underline. The fire had no power. The fire had no power. The fire had no power. Because there's so many things in our life that seem so powerful that they can hurt us. But in the end, it has no ultimate power. It can hurt for a little while, but it can't hurt forever. And look what it says in verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. 
And they frustrated the king's word they, and yielded their bodies that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. They became a sacrifice, holy and acceptable. They submitted themselves. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces. Their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So the king made his way as near as he dared to the orifice of the oven. And he said, Ollie, Ollie, Hudson, free. It's interesting to me that the accuser of the brethren and the accuser of your soul is going to hear the words of Jesus in eternity future. Innocent by reason of trusting me. Satan will say, He's guilty. She's guilty. He's guilty. She's guilty. He's guilty. She's guilty. And Jesus said, love them, died for them, love them, died for them, loved them, died for them. Free, 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 free. In the future, he will be bound and cast into a fiery furnace where the flame never goes out. The same king who placed them in the fire now calls them out of the fire. But in the end, it's Jesus who preserves them in the fire. You may walk into the fire and you may walk out, but there's a king who preserves you. Look at verse like I said, 27, it has no power. The fire has no power. The raging fire has no power over their bodies, over their hair, over their head, over their garments. And Nebuchadnezzar isn't alone in witnessing the miracle. All of the people who are there, the religious leaders, the political leaders, their neighbors, the idolaters, they've all witnessed the miracle. Almost certainly this is what the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote in Hebrews 11:34 and they quenched the violence of fire. Jesus will quench the violence of fire. In verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar blesses the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He calls on the people to honor God, and he lists three reasons. Number one, the angel of the Lord has saved them. Number two, the faithful men have remained steadfast in their trust of God, and they have refused to betray God, even if it meant refusing to betray their king and their country. The faithful men defied the king and are willing to die for their God. And finally, the king promotes Daniel's friends. And we can guess 
what that compensation might have looked like. Now, again, I want you to think about this. Imagine the harm done. Imagine the pain. Imagine the mental and the emotional suffering. Imagine walking into this fiery furnace and then asking and answering the question, what will make up for that? What will you give me to make up for that? And there's nothing you can give someone to make up for that. But the Bible does say that our present suffering will seem like nothing compared to the eternal reward. In the chapter, we've learned that worship only belongs to God in verses 1 through 7. We learned that everyone has faith in something or someone in verses 1 through 7. And that faith is either going to be well-placed or misplaced. We also learned that all followers of Jesus are called to be obedient to God and to experience patient endurance in the midst of trial in verses 8 through 12. And that obedience unto death, even though it's the exception, is something that each and every one of us is called to. No wonder now we understand what it says in the New Testament when Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. There is a sense in which each and every one of us will live to ourself or die to ourself. We will live for Christ or we'll live apart from Christ. And of course, we learn that great strength when believers are able to face trial together and of course that God can be trusted even when we are not aware of the outcome and that the deliverance of these three faithful men is going to serve as a victory for the rest of the Jews who are in captivity. You know, Stephen was stoned to death because of his faithful testimony to Jesus in Acts chapter 7. In Revelation 6-9, it refers to those who are martyred for their faithful testimony to Christ. Paul is stoned and left for dead in Acts chapter 14, verse 19. And so we would remember Jesus' words in Matthew 16-25. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Nebuchadnezzar is forced to confess what he doesn't want to confess. There is no other God who can rescue like this. Who's like God? The ancient sun god of Egypt couldn't prevent Jehovah God from bringing darkness on Egypt. The Egyptian god Nihilus couldn't preserve the Nile when God decided to turn it into a river of blood. In Sumerian and Babylonian mythology, the fire god was called Ninurta and later Jebel. He was associated with forest fires and the forge. And according to Babylonian mythology, he is the one who forges the tip of the iron spear. He is the god of fire. But the god of the Bible is able to hide people and preserve them even in the midst of the 
fire. Who could possibly be against you if God is for you? What could possibly stand against you if God has already determined that he will accomplish what he has planned for you? And the God of this world is helpless to prevent Jehovah from rescuing you the moment you confess your sin. The moment that you say, I want to be free. I want to be forgiven. I want life. I want mercy and grace and hope and a future. I want to trust Jesus. The combined powers of hell are helpless against the mighty power of Jesus to forgive you and save you and protect you. We're going to have communion in just a moment. And I I just want to uh, just have you all partake together. And while we're having communion, again, I want you to remember that Jesus isn't delivered from the suffering. He's going to face the fire. He's going to walk into the furnace. And he is going to take our punishment and completely satisfy God's requirement that justice be served for every wrong thing, every wicked thing, every, everything that I've ever done and you've done. That when you confess Jesus as your Savior, he purposed in his heart to save you and to satisfy God's requirements concerning you and then to give you a place in the future with him forever. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for these men and women, Lord. We thank you again, once again, Lord, even as we take these elements, as we, as we consider them, this wafer and this juice, Lord, we see that these are elements that are crushed so that they can be consumed. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus was crushed so that we could be partakers of a life that we don't deserve. And so, Heavenly Father, just like Jesus said and gave us permission to do, the Bible says that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body which will be broken. For you. And again, the Bible says he gave thanks and he praised and he took the cup and he said, Blessed are you, God of heaven, that you've given us this cup. That, Lord, that it's given for the purpose of forgiveness of sin. And so, Lord, we take this cup and we drink from it. 
we take this bread and we eat it as we identify with what Jesus has done in our life. Sacrifice for sin. Forgiveness of sin. And the hope, and the hope that because Jesus is in our heart, that we can walk safely into a future able to change, able to love you, able to serve you, able to obey you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together.